Hey, Charlie, have you voted in the Tofacha board yet? You mean the competition we're running to celebrate our artist and friend James Fosdyke? Yeah, of course that's what I mean. What else would I mean? The competition where we're asking listeners to vote for their favourite Tofop art illustrations created by Foz. Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. The one that only takes a minute on our website, tofop.com, and every entrant goes in the draw to win one of 10 signed Tofop artworks. Yes, I, I can't tell you any more times. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Have you voted yet? No. Well, what are you waiting for? Vote in the Tofachibald now. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You want me to vote now because voting is only open until 4pm on October 4th? Yeah, yep, that's it. Stop it. Well, nothing good happens in November, does it? Um, I don't know. It's like the end of the year. It's not Christmas isn't here yet. You know, Halloween's been like, you know, all the fun stuff. I mean, for some people, I guess the Melbourne Cup, people like the Melbourne Cup carnival. I mean, sure, my wife's birthday's uh, in November. I guess that's good for her. But for the general public, nothing good happens in November <laughs> until now. What? What's going on? What are we doing? So, Fop, us, you and me, we're uh, returning to the live stage for the first time in six years. That's right. We are doing shows in Melbourne and Sydney. Melbourne at the Basement Comedy Club, November 11th. Sydney at the Comedy Store, November 25th. Exciting stuff. These are our first shows in six years. Six years since we last did a live show. Sydney Opera House dropped those microphones, pledged that we would never come back. Entertainment demanded that we would never come back. But in your face, entertainment industry, we're back, baby. We are back live on stage, Will and Charlie, doing what we do, which we don't know what that is yet, but we'll work it out by the time we get to the stage. Charlie's (laughs) been working on it for six years, he promises me. (laughs) It's going to be amazing. So November November 11th, Basement Comedy Club in Melbourne. November 25th, the Comedy Store in Sydney. Go to our link tree on our socials or go to tofop.com to get your tickets. See you there. A listener production. The creators of this podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which it is recorded. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are the first storytellers of this land. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, as well as any Indigenous people who may be listening today. Hey guys, Charlie here with a brand new TOEFOP with friends and today I am joined by Ben Gillies and Chris Ajonu from the band Silverchair. They have a brand new memoir coming out called Love and Pain, the Epic Times and Crooked Lines of Life Inside and Outside of Silverchair, which is quite a byline. It's a great chat. I really love talking to these guys. Uh, very honest and very um, forthcoming. Uh, so I hope you enjoy this chat too. Ben Gillies and Chris Ajonu. The question that you probably get asked a lot and has been on my mind for ages is at the age at which Silverchair took off, your teenagers, what does that do <laughs> to a teenage brain? I think about <laughs> myself when I was your age and the, the best job a mate of mine had was working at McDonald's because he could get free cheeseburgers. Suddenly you've got a job that we only dream about. What is that like? I think um, there's no denying that we were – excited about the thought of what lay ahead um but also i think at that age age there was still a nice element of naivety and sort of a sense of blissfully unaware really we didn't know any different really but you wouldn't have had any idea where it was going to lead so what was the focus as kids were you just playing for fun or did you actually have like a, a business plan in mind i think early on um the the motivation was always just music. We were just so passionate about writing and playing together and and discovering music. And it was like we'd kind of discovered this secret kind of, it's not a cult isn't probably the right word, but this like magical (laughs) place that we could go and escape to together. And um, yeah, I think we were just, we just loved playing and loved kind of discovering it. And um, we did. We we discovered writing music early on as well. So we we started writing original music quite early on. Like I think 
we already had four or five original songs when we were like 13, 12 or 13 when the band started. Um, yeah, and there was no real – we were definitely ambitious, and that comes through in the book as well. Like we always had these dreams of being this great band and being a big band and signing a – for some reason we were obsessed with signing a, a contract, a record contract. That was the big deal. Um, so I guess when, you know, synchronized events kind of happened and, and, you know, our dreams started to become a reality – then then it does become like it's an option as a career and you do make plans. But, you know, the initial spark and the initial intent was just the love of the music. And and I think we really tried hard over the years to kind of hold on to that initial love. And I think we did pretty well, you know, it was always it really was always about the music. All the all the extra frilly bits like, you know, fame or or money or anything else that came along with it, like that was never the motivation. It was always about making great music and being a great band. What are you writing about as a 12 or 13-year-old? Like what were the the common themes of the, the songs you were writing back then? Well, I think a lot of the – I mean, D- Daniel wrote the lyrics in Silverchair. So, you know, a lot of, the, a lot, a lot of that content, um, although, you know, Chris and I could relate to it, well, some of it because, you know, we were having a shared, very similar shared experience. Um, you know, Freak being a really good example, you know, a, a lot of it was about his personal journey, which is, I think, um, you know, as a, as a songwriter, that, that's, it's the easiest thing to write about. And I think as a human, like, you know, generally you relate to, you know, we, we relate to music and songs that, um, you know, we feel like he's talking to us or we can, we, we understand it on a certain level. So, um, yeah, a lot of the lyric on the lyrical side of it was about, you know, where Dan was, um, in his, in his journey. Mm. And so where, what musical influences, like, did you grow up in a household where your parents played music and listened to music? Is that where it came from? Yeah. Our dad, well, all our, um, dads, I guess, who we initially lent on <clears throat> when discovering music early. Um, and I'd, I'd get a sense the three three dads had very similar tastes. Like we're all pretty much listening to Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin. Um, uh, yeah, so it was, I guess, it, yeah, the early days formed just whatever was kicking around in your parents' record collection. I uh, grew up in a, a big family. I'm the youngest of nine kids, and so there was a, like an incredible vinyl collection in my house of all my siblings' varied tastes, from sort of disco to heavy metal to, you know, my parents' swing music. Like it was that old. But the thing I most the, the the lasting memory as a kid is going into the living room and pulling out the vinyl and having that really tactile experience of looking at the album cover, opening it up. Like I remember Sergeant Pepper's, like that. That cover just, I was obsessed with it as like a five-year-old. Like, who are these people? What is going on in this? And then you flip it over the back and, you know, I think Sgt. Pepper's was one of the first albums to print lyrics. And so then you've got like the lyrics on the back and you're reading it like a story. And I guess it was my first exposure to like a concept album. You know, like the Beatles are like, well, we start with Sgt. Pepper's, we finish with, you know, Sgt. Pepper's and then we'll have a bunch of songs in the middle. Yeah. But I remember just being like, so I'm not musical at all, but that sort of, Back in those days, there was this this connection to music that was more than just what you heard. It was the artwork. It was having that thing in your hands. Was it the same for you guys? Yeah, like um, I've got a you know a small record collection at home, and I still appreciate that moment. It's a, a real it's a commitment to going and putting that record on and stopping and flipping it halfway through. And it's it, yeah, it's definitely a really sort of, yeah, tactile listening experience whereby you're very – it's not just something on in the background you've and, – and and the artwork too, like artwork on, you know, the old record covers, but just having the size, stuff just mm. translates um, and lends itself to, you know, so much more rather than, well, I guess now it's just a tiny little image on a screen. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've gone back to almost like a, it's like a single driven kind of industry. That's what, yeah. you know, before they came out with EPs, that's what it was about, right? Yep. You come up with a single, 
And it feels like that's what we've gone back to. You know, the fact that you don't even have to look, like you can just ask your, you know, Alexa or Siri, you know, yeah. to play you with song. You don't have to go through that selection yeah. process. Yeah. And, yeah, and then they you know, build playlists for you and they, you know, yeah. Yeah, and it's weird how well uh, they understand my taste in music. <laughs> like, I'm like, I really couldn't have selected a better playlist if I had tried. Yeah. It's like your best friend hiding in there. I remember one of the first um, songs, like, this is a bit off topic, but I just remember, and again, it was on vinyl. I, I've got this really clear memory of being in my living room and dad putting on Baby Elephant Walk. <laughs> and just like that melody, like if I, like I actually, it's, I can't get it in my head right now, but if I heard, like it's just so, it is very, if you hear it, you just know what it is straight away. And yeah. I, who the hell knows why dad had Baby Elephant Walk on vinyl, but um he did have quite a vast collection so yeah but i think i it's i think it's hard with record stores now right like they're they're just so few and far between like everything's online it's either streaming and if you were to buy i feel like by even buying vinyl which seems to be i think a couple of years ago vinyl outsold cds or something Mm. silly like that but even getting a vinyl like it's not a it isn't that really fun tactile experience where you go into a store and you flip through the flip through yeah. them all to see what there is. It's it's all everything just feels like it's online and look, I definitely miss that that side of uh discovering music and listening to music. Like I used to sit in front of, you know, the prized family stereo when I was young and either I'd be yeah, going through that like it was a it was a that had the vinyl player on top and the C D player in the middle. And, you know, I'd sit there for hours, like, you know, either going through the vinyl covers and lyrics and artwork or the, you know, you'd pull out the the inserts in the CDs and unfold them and see what they've kind yeah. of created. And Yeah, there's, there's definitely that. It's, it's, it's part of the musical. I guess it was more of a journey. You know, albums were a journey. And I think Silverchair actually, like, you know, we really lent into that side of the, creative process we always love putting together a bit of a journey for our fans so um but now yeah it's i guess the the culture of 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 selling unless like you're a mega artist like you know like a taylor swift or a drake or something like that you know that it's 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 valuable to put a a full album and an, and an, and a, an experience together it seems like so many artists just put out eps and singles and um, yeah, I, def- I definitely miss that that experience of discovery. We well, it's kind of get that uh, choice paralysis now. It's not you know just with music, yeah. you know, films as well. You know, oh, content, I, yeah, content is just overload. Oh, yeah. it's crazy. So the the motivation behind the book, like, how long has this been in the works? Have you guys talked about doing this for a while? Yeah, so the, initially the the idea came to me probably in about 2018. Um, I came, I approached the publisher that my wife worked with on her book, um, and said oh, I'd be I'm interested in maybe telling my story of you know my time in Silverchair, and that kind of fizzled out. Um, and then the real trigger point was um, I had twin boys born in 2001. I, 2021, 2001. Holy shit. I wish it was uh, <laughs> <You're> done. They're, <laughs> they're at uni. Congrats. <laughs> Job done. Uh, so, yeah. So, um, when they were born, that was, you know, have, have you got kids, Charlie? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. guess, you, you know, you get it, right? It's just, there's a, there's a quite a profound kind of moment when you see your own children. And um, to me, I just had this moment where I wanted to, write my story in a really um, concise way that they can, re- you know, from my perspective, that they could read and enjoy and not kind of piece something together from, you know, clickbaity articles on Google. Um, yeah. And also it's just a, I think for the fans as well, you know, it's just a, such a, it's such a cool story. Like it just, you know, I think Chris and I, and also there's, there's um, and then through that process, because um, Chris and I chatted about it, um, before that point, and he wasn't really interested in doing a book. He was more interested in, you know, hopefully doing something as a collective, as a band. Um, but once I 
kind of said to him once I'd started the process already and, and, and I went to him and said, look, there's still time because it was really early on. If you want to get involved as a co-author and we write it together, it's still time. And he had a, you know, he uh, wasn't sure about it, took a couple of days and slept on it. And then I got this very, uh, it was. Uh, in, <laughs> I think in, I texted cri- you, didn't it? No, you emailed me. Email. It was a very, uh, it was formal. a very formal, but it was a really, it was a really lovely message. I guess Chris, Chris lent into like I think there's a really, although there's a really great silver chest story that we both have. Like there's, I think there's a bigger story of our friendship um, lasting 43 years because we were born three weeks apart, 50 meters from out, uh, within 50 meters from each other. And we've, you know, we've got memories of like our street flooding when we were three, you know, three and four years old. And, you know, 43 years later to have that experience in Silverchair and still, you know, we had a, we had our wobbly moments, but to come out the other end of it with, you know, beautiful families and um, still, you know, best mates, I think that's a really great story as well. Mm. Yeah, and what and what do you and what do you think is the like the, the the reason you guys have stayed such good mates? Because I could imagine like the pressures of being in a band, touring, all that kind of stuff, and especially for as long as you've been doing it, could take its toll. Like, what what do you think it is that's held you guys together? Um, look, you know, you're right. All those things did take a toll, um, and, and like even uh, just back in the height of the band, touring stuff like that. You would still want to come home and just have your moment of just, you know, because of saturation with the little bubble that you're living in. Um, but I guess um, realizing the importance of friendships, and you don't really get the opportunity to have um, a friendship of that sort of duration and depth, and um, so there's there's definitely a um, uh, rarity, rarity, yeah, and um, I guess that in its See? in its sense, finish each other's sentences. <laughs> <laughs> That's adorable. Yeah, sorry, Chris. <laughs> Look at you guys. <laughs> but I guess I understand what you're saying. Is like I guess when you're in a world that can be so I guess fast paced and maybe transient in a way, you've actually got something that's quite real that you can trust because you've had it from when you were kids. Like I'm a big fan of of, of rock biographies and, and rock documentaries and stuff. And I remember reading, it was Slash's uh, autobiography, and he talked about um, the problem for him and why he thinks it contributed to his drug addiction was, you know, they'd go on tour for six months, a world tour playing to stadiums all around the world, and then the tour bus would drop him back at his house. you get off, the bus would drive off, and he's just standing there. And it's like, what am I going to do now? I can't – I'm not going to go play golf yeah, for all that tend to the garden. Yeah. Like I've, I've just – I've had these two lives, and he found it really, really hard to adjust to, I guess, like civilian life afterwards. Yeah. Well, I can – I mean, I, I'm sure both of us can relate to that. I think there's a, there's, there's a definite whiplash to the, the heart. Like – I, I do find the life of being in a band is your straddling kind of these extreme highs and extreme lows. Not extreme lows, but, you know, yeah, these extreme highs, but then you just come back to this really kind of normal life, I guess, and that can be kind of jar- quite jarring. Um, and particularly when we were younger, like we'd be, you know, one week we'd be playing to like 20,000 people on a tour bus on the other side of the world. And then at the end of a tour, we'd come home and, you know, on Monday we'd be in our school uniform going to school. <laughs> like that, it was, it was, it was kind of, that's crazy. it was a pretty, it was a pretty odd experience. And for Angus Young, it was the other way around. He'd go to work in his school uniform. So. <laughs> but I think, I think, you know, and one thing that Chris and I have been chatting about during the press for the book is that, Maybe it sounds like a really odd experience, and and it really was. But at the time when you're living it, it it's it's just it is your reality. So it's actually quite normal. Um, it's not until you have a bit of perspective and a bit of you know maybe a couple more years under your belt that you can look back and go, well, one a you were kids, yeah, and b it was quite an extraordinary experience. But you know because we were willing to kind of take it in our stride and just accept that that is our reality. Like that's maybe that's how we reconciled it. You know, we were able to, you know, not 
and maybe maybe going to school and uh, but even even after we finished school, there was still that whiplash when you yeah, got home. Absolutely. Like, you know, you, you, yeah, yeah, you you get home, you get off, you get off the plane, you go home, you're like, oh shit, what now? Yeah. Um, yeah, but anyway, I don't know. We survived somehow. We're still here. <laughs> I can imagine, like, like it would be hard to take a teacher seriously, like, when you're sort of going back to the school who's telling you to, like, cut your hair and straighten up, otherwise you never amount to anything. It's like, dude, we just played to 20,000 <laughs> yeah. people. I think we're amounting to something just fine. Yeah. Like, there would – because that dynamic does uh, shift because suddenly you are – you are kids, you're teenagers, and the and the world has established society has established rules that there's a hierarchy that you know kids listen to adults. But suddenly, you know, you are finding yourself with a lot of influence and not power necessarily, but you've got influence and and you've got status that sort of belies your age. Do you remember when it felt like things had changed, like where you weren't just you know, this band trying to kind of make it? Like, do you remember, was there a singular moment? Um, yeah, there's no a singular moment for me. I think our parents really had a heavy focus on just making sure that we um, lived and existed in a very normal fashion. So it's not like anything really changed at home. It's not like... Um, Things, we were just another kid at school. We were no different there. So, yeah, it wasn't probably until, you know, a year or two out of school and you've sort of had a few more life experiences and you're going, yeah, you know, this is a little bit out of the ordinary. <laughs> yeah, a, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> like do your mates treat you different? Like do you, the guys that your friends sort of maybe outside your immediate circle, like that must have been strange for them, right? We had a – yeah, pretty good circle of friends. And I think that they definitely contributed to that sort of grounding effect because they knew us well before the band uh, had taken off. So I think um, I think they were, they were always a good sort of leveller for sure. Even like people that we've met that are like superstars, I guess you could say, is that, I mean, most people are just human beings you know, and once you get to know them, and I think it's true for us too, like once people that we become friends with post the band, like once they get to know us, they're just like, well, we're just people. But we were really luck or lucky that, um, you know, those friends that we had in school, they were our friends before any of this took off. So they just knew us for who we were rather than, you know, oh, they're the guys in that band. That was just a, It was just an extra thing. There's no jealousy or anything from that, like, you know, teenage <sighs> jealousy and that all of a sudden you guys are getting more attention from girls and things like that. Well, I never I never I never I never felt that. No. Felt that. No. no. Right. No, not at all. I think that, that maybe it's maybe it's a newy thing, I don't know, but that mateship was was really important, you know. Like I think um yeah, maybe like we never like I guess if you were someone that would like rub it in their face, maybe, <laughs> maybe then like they would they would be like, oh, you're actually just a prick. But I mean, that would be more of a, a reflection of the kind of person that you are, you know. Yeah. But I think, um, yeah, it wasn't something that we kind of, I don't know. You, did, you didn't come to school and declare yourselves golden gods. Yeah, like, <laughs> that's, that's just, that's just yeah. not who we are. You, so, you, you yeah. wouldn't have got away with it for a second. Yeah, that's it. You, yeah, they just would. You would have been banished. You would have been yeah, sitting. Yeah. We were the three. The three of us just would have been sitting on our own, like yeah. not talking. I mean, there's some bad things about tall poppy syndrome, but there's some good things as <laughs> well, really, isn't there? <laughs> so when you start going on tour, like I guess full time, you, you know, you're done with school. Um, like, what what was it like? sort of rubbing shoulders with these other bands. And I'm sure lots of these would have been bands that you had sort of been listening to growing up too, right? Yeah. I, for me, um, I I don't know, as Ben says, well, there's two parts to this, I feel. is One, we just thought that that world was just, you know, it, it was just another day really. Um, yeah. You're kind of de- you're going to work. desensitised to maybe the enormity of some people that you're just rubbing shoulders with on a daily basis. Yeah, you just think, yeah, we're all doing the same thing here. So I guess yeah, you're in a similar position and 
you think, well, I'm just, I'm just a normal person. So you sort of, you can associate with them in a, on the similar level, I guess. Yeah. There was one gig I remember in particular. I'm not sure if you remember this one, Chris. It was somewhere in Germany, but I think on the bill, there was, I remember there being Beck, Aerosmith, Kiss, and David Bowie. Mm. And it was just like, that's an extraordinary bill. And, you know, you just kind of walk around backstage and you're like, oh, yeah, they're the guys. And, you know, I remember we were standing side stage watching Bowie play and he was like, that's got to be my top five gigs. He was unbelievable. And, you know, Gene Simmons, like, is standing next to us, you know, with with his girlfriend at the time watching this band and you're just kind of like that. It was just so it was normalised for us, and we would just say, "Yeah, cool." We're watching David Bowie side stage, and here's Gene just hanging out. You know, it was kind of, and we did. I think we did a like we ended up doing a few gigs with Kiss, like on the same festival. Yeah, same run of festivals. And um, and we had this really funny um, our our drum our um front of house guy was quite funny and. Um, he gave me this idea once and I actually even I got a pair of he didn't quite get the joke. I got a pair of my drumsticks and signed it to to Chris, the drummer from from Kiss, and I signed it to Chris, you know, all the best, love Ben or whatever. And I went up to his drum tech and I said, Look, I think I know Chris is probably a little bit a little bit embarrassed to ask for this, so I've signed these for him. So you can pass them on. And they didn't, he just didn't get the joke. And then, like, he was like, oh, yeah, thanks, man. Cool, man. And then later that day, he came back and said, oh, Chris was really stoked that you got signed the sticks and here's a pair of his signed for you. <laughs> just the joke, just, it fell flat, but it was kind of like, yeah. But that was our, that was, that was our, it was, oh, we keep coming back to it, but that was just our normal. That was our, it would just felt, yeah, there was nothing kind of extraordinary about it at the time because you're just living it. And I guess you've got the three of you there together and you're all from the same area, so you're all keeping each other grounded. You're all, you can sort of rely <clears> on each other to know when, you know, when, when things are sort of get, getting crazier and crazier that you're still sort of grounded to where you yep. started. Oh, we would, yeah, there was no – it was like the schoolyard. Like there was no getting away with anything. Like if, if Chris, right. Chris or – No one's getting a big nah, No, if Chris or Dan or I showed any signs of that, it was like, you know, you'd, you'd get you'd get cut down. The tall poppy, you know, it was it even existed within the band, you know. Like don't, don't get too big for your boots there, mate. So, you, you know, you guys sort of hit the scene and you're sort of pigeonholed as like a, a, a grunge kind of alternative rock act. But then – What's the amazing thing about your career is like how you changed with each album and how you try, you know, your sound changed and how you presented and you really evolved. How conscious a decision was that? Did it, did it happen sort of organically? Um, yeah, I get a sense that there was an organic element to it, but I think it, it was probably just really born out of the, the drive to want to keep pushing the boundaries really um and and exploring um different things and whether that relates back to those early days of just you know coming from an album sort of listener perspective um yeah i'm i couldn't tell you exactly but it was definitely um yeah i think it was just pushing the boundaries and and wanting to keep further in the 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 you know the journey of the band it was probably i think it may have been an age thing as well you know like at 14 years old or 15 years old like you have so much self-discovery to do um in terms of yeah life experience and as a musician like you've you've got a lot of room to move and a lot of headroom to improve and and push yourself as a as as a player and as a as a creator and i think um I think that kind of worked in our favour. You know, we had that the the on Frog Stomp. It was just raw emotion and just kind of like pedal to the metal. And that's that's what you do when you're a 15 year old boy. <laughs> um, but as as we all matured and and you know your, your tastes expand and and you, you you become more curious about yeah where you can push things. Like I I think that's you know that that's why the band kind of 
you know, evolved. And we have to keep it interesting for ourselves and we have to keep challenging ourselves. I think if we, you know, if, if we just stuck to the, the frog stomp model uh, for our whole career, like, well, one, I don't think we would have we would have lasted because we probably just would have gotten bored. Um, so, you know, there was a, there was a lot of factors that why we, why we did, you know, progress and evolve over time. I was watching, um, get back the Beatles documentary, the Peter Jackson one that came out a, a couple of years ago. And I was just so, have you guys seen it? I've seen I've that seen one. Parts of it. Yeah. It's really yeah, good. So it's three, three two hour episodes. It's, um, Peter Jackson took all the, uh, all the original documentary footage that was shot for the let it be documentary back in the, in the late sixties and has like color corrected it and made it look like modern day. It's incredible, but it's this, it's like reading a really dense novel. It's like three two-hour episodes where there's no narration, there's no talking heads. You are literally just in the studio with the Beatles. And the way that the documentary moves, it starts off where it's the first, you know, um, the first few days of this recording session, they're just not getting on. John disappears for a bit. They don't know if they're going to record the album. Paul's just really trying to hold it together. Then the second episode, they bring in Billy Preston, who's on keys, and suddenly they they find their rhythm. And then the the last episode is them doing the legendary rooftop performance. But the overwhelming thing that comes out of watching it is just how blue collar their job is. Like you're watching the Beatles, they're geniuses, like three of the greatest songwriters of all time in that room. But they just turn up and they just sit around, and it seems like the writing process for them, like 90% of it is fucking around and playing other people's musics and, and just chatting, and then if, and then eventually just by showing up each day and fucking around, they find something. They'll play a riff or they'll find a melody, and then they'll hook into that, and then slowly they put together like a song. Uh, is that how your creative process was? Was it fairly like you guys just had that work ethic of showing up each day? Yeah, I think um, I guess the the creative process within Silverchair also evolved over time. I think in the early days, um, da- Daniel and I would do a lot of the kind of music together. Um, uh, Daniel obviously did he did a lot of the lyrics and the mel- well, he, he was the main lyric and melody writer. And um, but in, in terms, particularly on the first two, even three records, I guess the structure of the songs, that was probably the part where it felt like that Beatles experience where, you know, we'd have maybe a rough structure for a song or some ideas or Daniel, um, you know, I say on the third record um, would come in with some musical ideas and then, you know, we just played as a band. But it's funny how once you play ideas as a band and we and particularly when you've got that musical trust with between each other you know the songs would very much start to take form and then you'd stop and you'd you know you might have an idea in the spot like you know we need to break it down here or add this part here or um so that was you know that that, that was you know there was there's, there was definitely parallels to that to that Beatles docu- um documentary and then probably on the front, on the last two records, um, I, Daniel had a lot of the songs kind of in his head, and he came to us with more fully formed songs. But um, I guess there is there is a silver chef, and we talk about this in the book. There is a there's like a, I guess a silver chef filter that you know even with those more fully formed songs, once we played it as a band, you know, you naturally they 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 need kind of nipping and tucking in in certain spots because it, it just changes once the three of us play together and it's it's to make the songs better you know i guess with silverchair there was never really any rules about how to do it you know it's you just you just you serve the song you do whatever the song needs um and even say i mean tomorrow is the is probably a great example as one of the rare occasions we went um, we just decided to jam. There was no, you know, there was no initial idea. There was no initial melody, no nothing. And we were just jamming in my bedroom, my childhood bedroom at the time. And we literally started playing the chorus at the same time. Who knows how it just came out of the blue, but it's one of those things that just appeared because we were just 
mucking around and we just started playing this thing at the same time and when we stopped playing we're like that 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 was a pretty cool moment maybe we should turn that into something um and then on the album six that we started working on that never saw the light of day we kind of lent into that process again of the jamming you know there were some really cool ideas and so there's i guess there's no real rules to it but that it's definitely about turning up and trusting the process and you know we re- i think we really lent into that there was a lot of a lot of the time especially in like even pre-production stuff later in the piece like we and and getting ready for touring and stuff like that we would do um like we would re- re- rehearse every day be turning up and that would go on for weeks um just getting it to that point where it's just like absolutely perfect um and um and you just you're not even thinking why you why you're playing it's just falling out of you essentially yeah and i think that's something that comes across in the book that that just the the level of particularly within silverchair the level of work that goes on behind the scenes that you know i i think that i don't know what the perception is for people that look at bands and but for silverchair like you know you, you don't just turn up to a studio and you bust out a song there is a lot of work and a lot of rehearsal a lot of preparation that goes into um not just the creation but the the being prepared for when you play in the studio or when you play a tour like um yeah it's a lot you know yeah absolutely i mean i i just find that whole creative process so interesting especially when you doing it in a a group dynamic because obviously you've all got your different skill sets or what you're bringing to the table but then knowing when something's done that's the hard part I find like when I collaborate with other people on something it's like we can keep working on something forever but part of me feels like that's a bit of a like perfectionism is a form of anxiety it's like you're too scared to show something to the world or put it out there in case it you know that you get laughed at or and and that's where that's where a good producer is worth their weight in gold in in moments like that yeah they're definitely aiding aiding you to sort of yeah know when it's cooked and knowing when (laughs) to flip it (laughs) and keep keep cooking so then Ben, you, you mentioned the, the Silverchair album that will never see the light of day, and that was what you're working on when you guys took your indefinite hiatus, which I think we all understand now is probably like a, a permanent <laughs> hiatus. What 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 happens with that music? Like is that, I mean, is there a chance we'll ever get to hear that again? Oh, I doubt it. And look, I, I kind of, um, you know, I don't think those ideas that we recorded would do the band justice like there were some really there were some really great ideas that we were working on um and there was there was you know maybe a couple of songs that were getting closer to being more complete songs but even then they just they still weren't quite there um so yeah i i don't think they'll ever see the light of day unfortunately but i just they weren't ready you know, like they they hadn't been through that whole kind of silver chair process, and one of the one of the biggest reasons for that is I, I we just we we really needed a producer like um to help us uh, turn those ideas because that's all they were they were just kind of musical ideas. We needed someone to help us kind of t- turn them into songs, um, but we'd gone into the studio with a whole with a different approach we don't we'd generally gone into the studio on all of our records up to that point with songs ready to record so we knew what we were doing on for that album number six we went in um with nothing so we didn't have like we didn't we literally went in and just started jamming so and we'd never done that before so it was it was uncharted territory um, but look, I thought you know, I thought we were onto something really cool and really progressive, and and another leap forward for the band. Um, but you know, the the wheel started to fall off around that time, um, and not 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 because of the music, because of other other things. But um, yeah, I don't. It's unfortunate there was some bloody cool mm. stuff in there, but look, it wasn't it wasn't ready. It needed it needed quite a lot a lot more work before. 
you know, I think it would have been ready to to have been revealed to the public. Yeah. And how is your relationship with Dan now? I mean, are you guys in contact with each other? Um, no, not not a great deal. Um, last time I hung out was a little while ago. I ran into him briefly at the last Cambridge show. But, yeah, it's not, um, uh, I guess, a regular occasion. Yeah. At this stage in our lives, um, I guess we're all just on different paths. Uh, you know, Chris and I have got young families and, um, you know, I've, 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 I work on my, my, my own music and Chris is, um, you know, what, doing his thing in Coffs Harbour and, yeah, we're just, we're all just, we're all just doing different things. Which is normal. I mean, that's the thing. The, the, the issue is because you guys – are trapped in amber in a lot of people's mm, memories. Yeah. Like, you know, everyone remembers you as this trio, but the natural order of life is things change and people move on. Like, you know, people that, you know, I was very close with and friends with 20 years ago have also moved in different directions, yeah. but I'm not in a famous rock band, so people don't always ask me yeah. about those the, those people. But I guess that's the question that's, that's, that's always going to come up. Um, in, May, in writing this book, was there anything that kind of, surprised you like memories that you hadn't thought about in a long time which you're like oh my god like that that thing happened that we have to put in the book did you sort of come across any journaling or anything like that there was a few few um things that i just completely just classic tour stories and um incidents classic incidences but probably the big one for me would be the discovery of you know ben's mental health challenges that I was in such close proximity, but didn't know, I guess, the enormity of it. Um, yeah, we, you know, we all would see that, you know, if each of us were having a difficult time or dealing with something, but yeah, I just never really knew the enormity of it. What was going on for you, Ben? Uh, I guess I was having some pretty, pretty significant struggles with. Yeah, well, it's mental health, but I had it's it's in the book. I had a um a drug induced psychotic episode of hydroponic marijuana being the being the trigger, I guess, uh, which is really common, I think, around that time for guys in the early twenties. Um, you know, and uh, you know, have all these crazy thoughts of like, am I going crazy? Like, you, you think you're seeing things, and and then that kind of bubbled up this underlying anxiety, um, which I think was always kind of present, but that really brought it to the surface. And then I kind of went on this whole mental health journey from then, more so around anxiety, but also the anxiety of having another one of those psychotic episodes. Um, and the, the, the challenging thing with anxiety is it's like a spiral, you know, you, you get anxious about being anxious and... Yeah. Um, and look, I, I thought it was really important uh, to be brutally open and honest about it, in, you know, because if I was 20 years old again and I, you know, say one of the musicians that I looked up to had written a book and I read that and I'd had that experience, like not the not the psychotic stuff, oh, that's really scary and I I would never want to go back there, but even just the anxiety, um, you know, that it would have been quite a comforting read to know that some, you know, that it's, it doesn't discriminate, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, you, you can, from the outside, it can look like you're having this incredible experience, which we did, but that doesn't mean that you're not still having the same struggles as, uh, as everybody else. Well, I'm sure it exacerbates it in a certain sense, doesn't it? Because, you know, you've got eyes on you while you've also got mm. internal yeah. eyes on you going, what's going on? Like you sort of, it's just layer upon layer. Yeah. It's, it's really, in, the the mental health thing these days, like Will and I on, on this show, we, we talk about it quite a lot. Like I'm quite open about, I've been in and out of therapy for five or six years. It's the best thing uh, that's ever happened to me, especially after becoming a dad, you know, like brings up a whole range of, of issues, um, you know, that I, I wasn't, that I thought I dealt with. Um, but the destigmatizing and the more, I think it's also a generational thing. Guys of our age, we maybe are the last generation that I didn't talk about right, it yeah. because all my younger friends, they're so 
yeah. goddamn open <laughs> and like freely hug each other and talk about their feelings and stuff like that. I think that thankfully we are the last of that generation. It's like, oh no, you've just got to keep that shit buried down and you know don't share it with anyone and you know just tough it out. Yeah. But you know we know what happens when you sit on that stuff too long. And I agree with you. I think putting it in print or putting it out there just enables the next young person who's going through something to go well. All right. Well, maybe I'm not like a, a losing my mind. I'm not going crazy. Like this is something that I can get help for, um, and especially now, like that you, when when because people don't really realize either that you can just go to your GP, get a mental health plan, subsidized. It really doesn't cost you that much. Yeah, go on. Although I must admit that the last psychologist I went to see, like I think I started talking and I could see her expression changing and I'm like, hang on, hang on. is what I'm saying to you like weirding you out? I'm starting to get a bit self-conscious in this session. And she was like, oh, no, 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 no. It's just I've got a, I've got a slight tick. I'm like, oh, thank God. I, thought I, I could see her face scrunching up. I'm like, oh, I'm really putting it on what I'm revealing. Yeah. <laughs> I need, I do need to mention Chris opens up about he had a um some pretty significant health uh stuff that he was really really open about as well um I mean it's not up to me to say it, but I I think you know it was very brave of him as well to I guess that was our but we both had interesting like mine was mental health Chris was some really serious health stuff but you know it was also very brave of Chris to open up about that to you know and I think a lot of people will get I don't know if you want to talk about that Chris. yeah so just to give you a bit of insight so yeah um I had a cancer diagnosis in July 2019 and um yeah just some um yeah lots of treatment and um bits and bobs um and yeah very grateful to you know still be here today essentially um so yeah it sort of does um yeah highlight the fact of yeah we just we made a commitment to be very open and honest about um our life experiences um and and taking the opportunity to celebrate the really amazing moments too yeah and, and I, you've got such a big fan base out there as well who, you know, were sort of clamoring for that new album. But this is kind of something, this is like it's a new silver chair release in a way, really, isn't it? Except they're hearing from just you guys. Like there's a much bigger story than just the band. Like, I mean, that's why we open up mm. about our really personal stories. And we talk about the time before and the time after the band. And I, and we, I guess we really lent into that 43-year friendship you know and I think um in talking about the mental health stuff and Chris's health journey um I think one of the takeaways that I'm I'm finding that people have seemed to be connecting with is like you know what's really important in life you know like it's it it is those um important relationships you know and 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 nurturing them and and you know and just overall what's what's important in life like it's and that that seems to be a really nice message that was not very intentional but maybe just because of the openness of of the way we we wrote the book is like something that's um that seems to be kind of shining through which is which is it's it's really nice you know it's nice to be able to pass that on to people that's awesome I remember my um my mother passed away a few years ago, and uh, she was quite um uh it was a really good death. Like she was kind of quite a, you know a, a very um a, a, a had a lot of agency around it and, and control about how she passed on. And I remember I, I recorded a few podcasts with her, like interviews with her in the oh, last cool. six months, just sort of getting her perspective on on life and death. And the thing that she said, um, which stuck with me, which is sort of echoing what you said, is. You know, she came to realize at the end of her life that the only two things you leave behind are the relationships you create, the relationships you make and the things you create. Like no one remembers how big your house was. No one remembers how much money you have in the bank. But the friendships you make and the family you create, they're the ones who remember you. And then it's whatever you choose to create, whether that's music or art or whatever it is, it's a, the garden that you tend to, they're the things that you leave behind. And because I was saying to her, is there anything that you regret or you wish you put more time into? And she's like, I just wish I'd spent more time with people I love. 
And I think that was like, that's such a perfect yeah. crystallization of what it's all about. You know, despite everything else, what it really comes down to is the people yep. in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And I look at that, it's, it's definitely, uh, it's funny you say that. I lost my mum three years ago and I lost my dad about two, two weeks ago. So I can completely, uh, yeah, I, I get it. It's, it's, you know, all these milestones that you have in your life. And I think it's also when you get a bit older as well, you know, the, having your own family, you know, you realize your own mortality when you lose a parent. Um, it, it makes you, and obviously Chris had to, you know, face his own mortality with, with, with his diagnosis and his, some of his health stuff. Like it really, it makes you appreciate those important relationships and it makes you realize, yeah, no one, you can have the biggest bank balance on the planet. No one gives a shit except for you. I think in, in dad's eulogy, my sister and I said, one of the last things he said to us, which I'll, I will never forget, he just goes, and this is a couple of days before he passed, he goes, have fun. He just said, have fun. And I was like, I mean, you know, you got to, Chris knows what my dad was like. Yeah. It was like per, it was yeah. perfect, perfect, simple words from Dave Gillies. But, you know, yeah, I think that's – and that's something that we uh, – that, you know, I, I think people will get from the book. It's like it doesn't matter how extraordinary you think someone's life is or whatever. It doesn't matter. None of it matters. All that matters is the people that you share it with and, 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 and make sure that you enjoy it because who knows what happens when we drop dead, but we'll, we'll, we all get to find out. But while we're here, we may as well have a good time. Yeah, spot on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's a great, a great one note to finish up on. So, Love and Pain, which is coming out on the twenty seventh of September, uh, guys. Thank you so much for coming on the show. If you could just indulge me, I have one question I always like to ask of musicians <laughs> because my favorite film of all time is Back to the Future, right? And there's the scene in Back to the Future where Michael J. Fox is playing with the band, and he decides to play Johnny B. Good, but the band he's playing with have never heard the song before, so he turns around and he says to them. Hey guys, this is a blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes yeah. and try to keep up. And then they perform a flawless version <laughs> yeah. of Johnny B. Good. Now, as two musicians, is that credible? Could that happen? Um, I, I, I think, I think you, I think you could. I think you. It's could. not not a complex chord progression. Like, um, yeah. And yeah, so you could just watch a lead guitarist. You just do. You're all playing a yeah. blues riff and B. You just watch him, and then you can just watch him for the changes, and you can play that that song you flawlessly. Probably, well, okay. yeah. flawlessly. Like, yeah, that's I reckon, enough to make you. I reckon there would be a, to ensure a, that you're born. A, a, a collective of musos that would be able to get pretty close. Okay, well, that's good to know that uh, Marty McFly would have been born. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And Chris, he didn't disappear. Thank you so Thanks, much mate. for coming on. Thanks, Charlie. Yeah.